This is the J. Scott Outdoors podcast on Western big game hunting and fishing brought to you by GoHunt.com Insider. Research faster, hunt more. Go to GoHunt.com forward slash insider and use the J. Scott promo code when signing up to receive a $50 Kuyu gift card. I'm your host, J. Scott. And I live and breathe hunting and fishing, spending half the year in the field experiencing God's creation. I hope you'll enjoy hearing about our adventures. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Uh, Today is going to be a really fun episode with my friend Russ Jacoby out of Flagstaff, Arizona. And Russ is just one of those guys that uh, seems to know a lot about a lot of things. And uh, we're going to have some fun with this episode. Uh, Russ is definitely... a a gear guru and uh, just someone that uh, I look up to and respect his opinion and he's got a lot of great insight. Uh, So that's going to be fun. Before we get uh, started with that, I wanted to thank you guys, the listeners, uh, for all your support of my podcast. And uh, you can follow along our adventures at at jscottoutdoors on Instagram and at Dara Colburn, my associate, also on our website, jscottoutdoors.com, our YouTube channel, jscottoutdoors, and Facebook page. I want to thank gohunt.com Insider for their title sponsorship of this podcast and remind uh, all of you that are Insider members and some of, the, some of you that are not, uh, that the Insider giveaway for January was uh, 40 uh, double tap ammunition, a uh, hundred dollar gift certificates. I actually got an email from a, a podcast listener that said they were one of the winners, and that that's fantastic. And uh, also this month, February, the Insider giveaway is actually six outdoorsmen's machined aluminum tripods and heads. So uh, six uh, Go Hunt Insider uh, winners or members are going to be uh, winners. And all you have to do is be an insider member to uh, to have a chance to win. So um, Outdoorsman's is also a sponsor of this podcast, and they make some great machined aluminum tripods and tripod heads. They make them in all uh, sizes. They make a short, they make a medium, they make a tall. They, they've got all kinds of uh, pan heads and pistol grip heads and and uh, what have you. So I want to thank uh, GoHunt.com Insider for their sponsorship of this podcast and uh, we had a great time taking the October GoHunt.com Insider uh, Hunt Giveaway Winners Coos Deer Hunting. Uh, we had a great time uh, last month. Dark Colburn and I took them on a great hunt in Sonora, Mexico. And there's always great gear and great uh, hunts to win at GoHunt.com Insider. Uh, also, the draw odds are up. And um, I've been uh, looking at them. Uh, for Utah, I'm really kind of pouring over the Utah application. Uh, coming up next, uh, next couple episodes, we have a trail, uh, trail Kreitzer, uh, and um, he is a Utah resident. Actually, works for the Department of of uh, uh, Wildlife uh, in Utah, and um, we're going to break down a bunch of the uh, Utah elk units. So that's uh, that's coming up here quick, and uh, guys. Uh, also wanted to point out uh, the Western Hunter promo uh, that uh, you've probably heard in the last few episodes uh, and you'll hear an ad in this episode. Uh, all you have to do is go in uh, register and that's it. You register your email and uh, you have a chance to win a $1,500 
credit towards any Swarovski product. So make sure you go to uh, westernhunter.net uh, forward slash jscott and uh, enter your email address uh, and you'll get a $1,500 credit. So uh, guys, thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to send me comments, uh, I get great emails and comments every single day. You can do that at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. Uh, this episode is going to air on uh, February 3rd, and I uh, actually will be on my way to the SCI convention up in Las Vegas, and I'll be up there for a couple days and uh, look forward to, I, I, I didn't go last year, but I look forward to just getting up there. It's an incredible convention, and uh, the, the, uh, the walking around uh, on the exhibit hall is just amazing. There's I mean, animals that I've never even dreamed of hunting. Uh, just there's there's all kinds of hunters from all over the world, and it's a fantastic uh, convention to go to. And then I will also be uh, at the uh, Western Hunting Expo in Salt Lake City uh, for a couple days. So uh, love to love to meet up with you guys uh, if you're there. Um, love to see you. if you see me. I'd love to shake hands. Uh, I really appreciate the support that you guys give this podcast. So let's get right to the episode with Russ Jacoby. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have good friend Russ Jacoby, and Russ has been a friend of mine for a long time, and, and he's the buffalo guru up there on the north rim of the Grand Canyon and um, tech guru uh love talking to Russ about all sorts of things uh, involved with hunting, involved with photography, anything tech-related, I call Russ. Uh, if I want new quad tires, I call Russ, ask him what he's running. Uh, seems to always kind of have uh, good opinions. And uh, Russ, I'm excited to have you on the show today. How are you doing? Hey, thanks for having me. I'm doing excellent. Good, good. How's the buffalo hunting going? How's it been treating you this last year? It's went well. Before we get into that, I didn't want to do one thing, though. I wanted to congratulate you on the success of your podcast. Thanks, Russ. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's kind of been mind-blowing uh, how well it's been received, and I'm extremely blessed to um, do what I love to do, and um, got a lot of great supporters and listeners, and uh, the sponsors have been great, too. So, yeah, it's, it's uh, thank you for that. You know, I think I was one of the first 10 podcasts, and I'm honored to be included again, and I thank you very much. Absolutely, buddy. Um, you know, it's always fun having you on the podcast. It's always fun. We talk uh, quite a bit and um, just go over things and what have you. Uh, I know that uh, you, you kind of hunt buffalo year-round. Uh, give me a little bit of, before you tell me how it's going, give me a little bit of a background on uh, your love of the Kayabab and the buffalo that live up on the plateau? Okay. Well, in Arizona, you know, we have what we call the Big Ten. And I think that's an odd number because I think there's really more than 10 big game animals. But regardless, um, buffalo obviously is one of the Big Ten. And I got started buffalo hunting um, a while ago. And it kind of just grew into what it is today. And I love all forms of hunting. I'm always amazed at uh, some of the specialty guides that specialize in just one thing. You know, there's some people that are excellent at uh, antelope and others focus on elk or great big mule deer. We love to hunt it all. And 
really surprised there are more people that, that get involved in what the buffalo are providing on the Kaibab, but it's certainly one of our passions and we really enjoy doing it. Um, people ask me why I do it. Well, it's one of the big 10. It's the biggest animal in Arizona. And being able to be involved with all the people that we meet that need that for their big 10 is really special. And there's something about the size of the animal that makes it special, but also the area that you're hunting. You know, the North Rim of the Kaibab is a very special place to visit. Uh, it's a little hard to access because it's so far from anywhere in Arizona. You know, the Grand Canyon is a formidable obstacle to getting there. Um, you know, it's maybe not as remote as the Strip, but this time of year, especially on the North Rim, access is a huge adventure. Just physically getting there is impossible for most people. So is it as much of anything, it's the adventure of it all that you really enjoy um, up there with those animals? Certainly the adventure, um, the landscapes of being that close to the Grand Canyon, it's, you know, very special place to be. Uh, the people that we get to meet and the temperatures. You know, this time of year it's pretty cold, but most of the year um, when some of my counterparts are on the strip sweating to death, we're up on the Kayabab really enjoying those those pleasant temperatures and and having a very fun time in the great outdoors of Arizona. For sure. Um, you know, buffalo is is a interesting animal. Uh, like you said, they're the biggest of, of all the animals in Arizona. Um, when you get a buffalo down, it's quite a chore, is it not? It is. We've done it enough that we've gotten really good at it. And as you know, Jay, my family is heavily involved in what we do. And Every member of the Jacoby family can break down a buffalo by themselves if they need to, but most of the time we, we bring a team of people in to, to take that part of the adventure and make it less physical. Yeah, for sure. You know, um, you not only guide uh, auction tag hunters, um, but you guide uh, general general tag holders, uh, and, and you, you tend to help a lot of hunters as well. Um, talk to me a little bit. I know last time in the podcast we talked about uh, if, if people don't understand how the buffalo move around up there, uh, they can really end up harming not only themselves and everybody else that has a tag by pushing them back into the park. Yeah, so, you know, it's a difficult circumstance for a professional outfitter to be there in that circumstance because... It's unique in Arizona that you're hunting against the park boundary. Now, that happens in other units, like Unit 9 for, for elk, but there are elk available away from the park boundary. Unfortunately, in Arizona, the majority of our buffalo on the Kayabab spend the majority of their time inside the Grand Canyon National Park. So we're literally hunting them when they come off of the park. So it concentrates the hunters along the park boundary. And as you pointed out, if hunters aren't really familiar with uh, a good way to go about it, um, they can kind of ruin their own hunt, but they can they can ruin it for a lot of other people as well. If you were the only person there, um, it would give you more freedom to change your hunting methods where they wouldn't impact other hunters and yourself negatively. But when you put, you know, a dozen or even a half dozen hunters in a very concentrated area, one person that's not being courteous can be detrimental to everyone's success. So to combat that, we, of course, try to book as many hunters as we can um, so that we can bring that expertise to those hunters' hunts. But the, the, uh, 
the hunters that want to do it themselves or maybe can't afford a guide, we go out of our way to try to be helpful to them as well. And that's a double-edged sword. You know, I, I catch it from other guides, like, why are you helping these people? Well, it's the right thing to do. Um, the other part of it is, you know, there's some people that aren't very ethical and they'll take advantage of us. And that's a fine line of when is somebody taking advantage of you and when are you trying to help somebody for the common good? And it's a juggling act. You know, I've got Game of Fish on one side and I've got other guides on another side and I've got freeloaders on one side and paying clients and I'm kind of stuck in the middle of all that. But we've been successful at balancing that difficult situation. Yeah, I'm sure you have. Um, what do you estimate the numbers of buffalo up, up on the plateau are? Well, that's a difficult question. Um, an exact number is almost impossible to get because of where the buffalo live. You know, the agencies have tried aerial surveys and different tactics to try to get a good count, and they've not been able to. Um, we probably have a better idea than anyone as far as how many buffalo numbers are there because we spend so much time on the Kaibab. I commonly spend over 100 or 150 days a year on the Kaibab just myself, and that doesn't include um, the outfitters and guys that work with me. So we spend a tremendous amount of time there. So between our physical observations and uh, the dozens and dozens of trail cameras that we run, we get a pretty good estimate of how many buffalo are there. Um, there's definitely over 500. Um, beyond that, I don't know that I want to stay in a public forum. There's some political um, perspectives at play here relative to um, the numbers of buffalo on the Kaibab, but there's certainly over 500. What's the conditions like? We're kind of right here at the beginning of January. Uh, what are the conditions uh, like up there right now? And what are the buffalo doing? Well, when we start talking conditions, that kind of segues us into how did this year go. Um, until this calendar year, um, there were you know, hundreds of hunters, around 400 hunters that we had helped harvest the buffalo in the Kaibab. And our success rate was 100% or very near it. I mean, there might have been one or two hunters that were unable to hunt that didn't get a buffalo. But pretty much anyone that had put in any reasonable effort had harvested a buffalo. This year, uh, with the El Nino weather patterns, we saw one of the wettest years on the Kaibab that I can remember um, in, you know, several decades. And the weather pattern when it rains or when you get snow, it tends to push the buffalo inside the Grand Canyon Park. And when they're not coming off the park, there's nothing we can do to get them. So that, that changes the paradigm on the Kaibab considerably. So the story of this calendar year would be the weather pattern being very wet, and there were hunters this year that hunted 14 days very hard and were unable to successfully harvest the buffalo. And that's very frustrating, um, both for us and for the hunters that work so hard, but you can't control that. It's hunting, not taking. Um, but the conditions right now are, are sporadic. What we see is one week we'll have a bunch of snow, and the next week there'll be some forecast and we don't get very much. But as of a week ago, most hunters were unable to access the buffalo with a vehicle that they would commonly use, like a pickup truck, and they were forced to move over to starting to use tracks. That's not uncommon for this time of the year, but it's different than last year. Last year was the first year in 
decades that you were able to get in there with a vehicle in January. Russ, I want to uh, shift a little bit to um, you were a big proponent in telling me to get the uh, Canon SL1 uh, camera. Uh, and then I recently purchased that big one to 400 millimeter lens, which I really am enjoying with the 1.4 extender that you recommended, the version 3. Um, you are looking at maybe getting a mirrorless camera, and I would ask you uh, what the differences are and why you're considering uh, buying a mirrorless camera and what the advantages are. Well, I really like my SL1, and what I like about it so much is it is a relatively compact, relatively light camera that is what I consider to be a, quote, real camera. You know, it's a DSLR-type body, and it has all the buttons and controls and knobs that a professional photographer would use. You know, it's not as fancy as their full DSLR bodies, but weighs a pound. So it's a pretty amazing camera. Most people look at the megapixels that a camera provides, but they don't look at the size of the sensor. And size of the sensor is a attribute in a camera that's much more important than most people realize. Most people look at two cameras and one says 18 and one says 20, they'll buy the bigger one because um, that's just how people are. And megapixels certainly matter, but sensor size matters as well. Sensor size is confusing to most people. If you don't understand sensor size, we can't really go through that here. What I would tell you to do is go into Google and just type in digital camera sensor size. And if you go into images, they'll show you pictures of the different sensor sizes that are available. So if you're comparing cameras, look at their sensor sizes. So in digital cameras, for a hunter, I considered the SL1 to be the ultimate camera that gives you a compact camera, but also a really big sensor. It's not the biggest one out there, but it's, a, it's much bigger than most, what most hunters are carrying. So excellent camera. But the DSLR has some features that most hunters don't need. Um, you know, a viewfinder and uh, a mirror and other internal workings of the camera that aren't important to the consumer, but are in there, um, aren't things that hunters need. And in many cases, they're not useful to the hunter. Um, DSLR cameras are essentially designed around a film camera that then uses a digital sensor. But you don't need all those attributes. There's things with digital that you can do you can never do with film. So a mirrorless camera strips out some of the features like a viewfinder that are commonly found in a DSLR type body, makes it even more compact, even lighter, less moving parts, and makes it maybe even better for certain applications for a hunter. If you're taking a trophy picture, either one will work fine. If you're digiscoping, a mirrorless camera definitely has advantages. There's no um, movement of the mirror at the moment of the shot, which theoretically makes the camera more stable when you're taking that picture. So I'm looking at the new Canon EOS M10 camera as uh, a camera to supplement my SL1. Very excited about it. I've actually have one that I've been playing with, and so far I'm loving it. Awesome. Yeah, I um, was talking to you yesterday, and it, <clears throat> I looked it up on uh, Google it a little bit and read about it, and people are people are liking it. So um, I'll have to look into that. Um, I want to I want to shift gears also and talk to you about uh, 
you're a bow hunter and you pride yourself on being a bow hunter and I'm curious if you could expand on why you like bow hunting uh, say more than rifle hunting. Well I'm an Arizona native, grew up in Arizona and when I was a wee lad the average person in Arizona could get drawn for something. Um, it's getting harder and harder to get those preferred tags these days. So, you know, in my 20s and 30s, I um, became a bow hunter because I enjoyed the chase and the, and the extra adventure that bow hunting brings, the proximity to the animal and so forth. But to be honest, a big chunk of it was wanting to be able to get drawn. So um became an avid archer so I could get those opportunities. Uh, as we've moved forward in time, it's getting harder and harder to get the archery tags. But I still think the draw odds for most of the preferred hunts are better for most, mostly for the archery hunters. So that's part of it. Um, but as an expert hunter, it increases the challenge. And um, I think it shows more respect to the animal. And it's just part of the passion, I guess, is inside of me. Um, I don't take anything away from rifle hunters. I still hunt with a rifle. In fact, as I've aged and started hunting more um, with my children and so forth, um, and even some of the nostalgia of hunting with grandfather's rifle or something like that, occasionally I do take advantage of some of the rifle tags as well. I want to ask you about um, hunting with your kids. And I know... Um, your, Jacob had an opportunity up there on the Kaibab. I think you actually had to go back to Flagstaff, and uh, you were pretty proud of your son um, for his accomplishments. And he's, you know, it seems like every time I see him, he's, you know, growing like a weed, and he's he's kind of coming into his own. Um, tell me what it's like to work with your son and, you know, um, hunt with your son as well as your daughter, but I, I remember a story you told me that was real touching about Jacob. Okay. So this is a family adventure for, for the Jacoby family. You know, my wife, I, I got to give her props. So I wouldn't be able to do what I do if it wasn't for the support of a, a very dedicated spouse. Uh, anybody that knows me very well knows I can be a um, very intense person, and that's not ideal for everyone. But Laura is a saint. She puts up with me and, and goes right along with all of my crazy ideas and adventures that I get us into. And she's a huge part of what we do. You know, when we first started doing so many hunts, uh, I tried to do it all myself. And it's just too much. And my wife was a teacher. And she's actually retired from that field and has switched gears. And now people ask her what she does. And she says, well, I'm busier than I've ever been. I, I take care of Russ. And they chuckle. But my wife cooks and cleans and does all the paperwork and just hundreds of activities that get taken for granted. And I love her and I just really have to give her props. In addition to all those wonderful attributes, she's blessed me with two perfect children. Um, my older child is my daughter, Kaylee. Um, Kaylee's 19 and she's a little bit more behind the scenes in some of the hunting activities, but it's definitely a huge part of what we do. Um, you know, Kaylee gets up it, crazy hours to load trucks and move equipment. Um, she cares for the home when we're not here. She gets buffalo. She packs buffalo. She glasses. She drops hunters off. She picks hunters up. You know, she does everything that all the rest of the people will do. 
And I just, I love my daughter and feel very close to her and had many great adventures in the outdoors with my daughter. And on a personal note, my daughter, Kaylee, will be going to be a missionary here in February. And she's going to serve in Montana, which anybody that knows our family considers that a huge blessing. She'll be right at home in Montana. So great things for my daughter. But specifically, your question about Jacob uh, as you know, Jacob is not your typical teenage boy. He's 14 now, but from the time he was old enough to walk, he's been following me around in the woods and a huge part of the guiding that we do. Uh, you know, you know the stories of Jacob showing uh, hunters working on their slam of sheep um, where the desert sheep are. And the hunters will just go, how old is this kid? And they're just shocked by what he can do. Well, Jay, you haven't seen him for a few months, and you literally will not recognize him. You know, the kid's close to six feet tall now, and he's starting to put on some muscle mass, and he's really coming into his own. Um, he's always been super helpful, but even more, more so now. But the story that you're asking about has to do with um, a hunt that we donated to the Outdoor Experience for All program. And I won't go into the details of the hunter, um, but let's just say that the hunter is probably one of the most physically challenged hunters that we'd ever helped. Um, it's a young man that um, is essentially paralyzed. And for him to legally hunt in Arizona, he has to have an assistant. And his assistant's his father. So anytime that he takes a shot at a game animal, his dad has to position um, his son usually in his wheelchair in such a way that they can set up a tripod and set up the rifle. And his dad actually leans over his son, takes his hand and puts it on the trigger. And the boy can pull the trigger, but it's a communication. His dad does the aiming and touches his son's finger. And that signals to his son to then go ahead and pull the trigger. His dad's job to keep everything lined up while the boy pulls the trigger. And, Anybody that's hunted in Arizona for very long that is ethical and in the outdoors and understand why we do the things we do for those family memories, you just cannot keep it together when you see a father that that's that dedicated to helping his son um, enjoy an outdoor experience that most of us take for granted. And it, it changes you as a person being involved in those hunts. This particular hunter had hunted very hard um, last calendar year for buffalo, but didn't have hardly any days available and was unable to, to harvest a buffalo. Um, he actually drew the tag this year, and, and we tried a second time. And he had more days available because the, the hunting season didn't, it didn't interfere with his school schedule. And I was there for the beginning of the hunt. We had harvested some other buffalo, but had yet to harvest one with this young man. He had some opportunities, but it hadn't come together for him. Well, I had to go back to town. So I left Jacob on the Kaibab with his mom, and um, there were some helpers there, and I came back to town, and they stay in touch with me with the satellite phone, and I got that special phone call that said, um, Dayton got his buffalo this morning, and it's a very touching, moving phone call to get from your son when I'm not physically there. Jacob was able to get up at 3 in the morning, go find buffalo come back and get the hunters, take them to the buffalo, and in a very challenging environment, get this hunter his once-in-a-lifetime buffalo. 
And to add to the Cinderella story, if you will, um, the young man's sister, who is barely old enough to hunt in Arizona, harvested her buffalo at the same time. So Jacob not only took a very challenged hunter and got him a buffalo, but he got his very young sister a buffalo at the same time. So they killed a double on buffalo. And I was just extremely proud at the ethical approach to the hunt, um, the memories that were made for that family, and that, that he was able to pull all that off without any involvement from me. So I was very proud of it. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it's just obvious that he's, you know, been around enough, learned enough from you that he was able to uh, know what he was doing. And that's fantastic. That's an awesome story. I enjoyed getting that call when you called me that morning. It was kind of an emotional experience for both of us just because uh, I know how important that was to you. And it's awesome. Just awesome story. I'm glad you were able to share that with us. Um, I've got, let's just take a quick break here, actually, and hear from our sponsors. Okay. At GoHunt.com, we are committed to being the best at what we do, and we take pride in putting ourselves in the customer's boots. The old way wasn't working, so we came up with a new way to give you access to the best draw odds you'll find anywhere. Our dedicated team of data scientists and hunters have gathered information from all over the western United States to provide you with the most accurate odds ever. Select a state, the species you're looking to hunt, the season you're looking to hunt, and even compare the probability of drawing to other units. You'll be given the most reliable draw odds in the industry, period. So don't let your boots get stuck in the mud. There's a new way of doing things. Visit GoHunt.com insider and join the movement. Use the J. Scott promo code when signing up and receive a $50 Kuyu gift card. Since 1982, the Outdoorsman's in Phoenix has made it their goal to provide the very best customer service combined with the latest and greatest optics and accessories in the business. Outdoorsman's is the leading designer and manufacturer of high-quality tripods and mounting accessories for any hunter's optical needs. Go to Outdoorsman's.com or call 1-800-291-8065 and use the J. Scott promo code until February 28th to receive 10% off all Outdoorsman's packs and pack accessories. Okay, Russ, I've got a gear question for you. Um, you are known, you know, you're you're six foot, what are you, six foot four? Well, I've had five surgeries, so yeah, these days I'm about six four. You're, sh- you're shrinking as the days go by? I'm shrinking as I get older. Um, but you've got Dar and I, you know, your legs are as long as Dar's whole, you know, your legs are longer than Dar is. And we always <laughs> laugh at how much you walk and how much country you cover on, you know, on your feet. Um, I, I've got a question about boots for you and what boots you found over the years work best for your feet and the importance of good boots for the hunter out there. Okay. So I have tried probably every brand of boots that hunters wear and probably some brands of boots that hunters don't wear. And there are certainly some brands that I prefer, which I, I'll talk about. But to me, boots is one place that you don't scrimp. You definitely want to invest in a really good quality pair of boots. And there's many good boots out there. Doing what I do as a year-round guide and outfitter, I find that that provides me the opportunity to have boots for specialized applications. 
So if I'm in five feet of snow, the boot that I need is much different than if I'm stocking an antelope in the cinders, which is maybe much different than the boot I need if I'm in the Black Mountains in 15D sheep hunting. But I have relatively narrow feet, so I need a boot that is narrow so that I don't get side lateral movement in the boot if I'm hiking side hill. Um, I'm a big fan of Scarpa boots. I've recently um, started buying more and more Scarpa boots, and I've had really good luck with the Scarpa boots. So I can strongly recommend the Scarpas as a good quality boot. Um, I do have a lot of Danner boots, and I I think that the the Scarpas are are a higher performance boot than the Danners, but I've had good luck with the Danners in the past. Um, For my pack boots, I'm wearing the Schneeze boots, and I've had really good luck with the Schneeze boots and and really happy with them. Um, Schneeze also makes some mountain boots, and I'm planning on purchasing and, and trying those type of boots. The style of boot in Arizona that I prefer um, is a boot that has a nice lug Vibram sole and has a rubber rand around the junction between the the sole of the boot and the leather. Um, I, I've tried non-leather boots. For me, I prefer all leather boots. Um, I like a Gore-Tex membrane, and I like a boot, a leather boot because I can waterproof the outer shell. And that style of boot works very well for the style of hunting I do. I have both unlined and lined boots. For the majority of the of the temperatures in Arizona, I wear an unlined boot. Um, for the colder temperatures, you're talking un, uninsulated versus insulated. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, a lined boot that's uninsulated for the warm temperatures, and an insulated boot for the colder temperatures. Um, but we don't talk much about socks, and that's an area where I think. Um, a lot of people maybe overlook. They invest a big chunk of money in a pair of boots, and they scrimp on their socks. I know Dar did a really good review on the Darn Tough socks, and I I also use the Darn Tough socks, and I'm very happy with them. Um, in the really warmer temperatures, I actually wear um, really thin socks, but I'll wear two pair. And um, I actually wear dress socks. A gold toe type dress sock and have found that to be very useful in the very warm temperatures that we often encounter in Arizona. You wear two gold toes, um, uh, both gold toes? Yeah. Uh, in warm weather? Okay. And if it's really warm, um, sometimes I'll switch down to a single sock. Um, what I find is the double socks um, on those really thin socks give you a little bit more cushion, but they, they wick well. And the two socks can rub together and you don't get blisters. And, and that works really well for me. It gives you a little more padding. Um, when I stop to glass, I'll definitely take my boots off, take my socks off, and it doesn't take them long to dry in Arizona. And doing that, I've had really good luck with that style of sock. Um, I am, this next season, going to try some of the thinnest darn tough socks I can get and see how those work. So these gold toe socks, I haven't worn gold toe in a long time, but you're talking like just like what you'd wear with your business slacks or something, the real, the blue or the, you know, whatever color, but the light, the th- those thin gold toes? Very thin gold toe socks. Um, I purchased them at the box stores in a, in a large package. They come in all kinds of crazy colors, and I don't care about color. You can't see them in your boots anyway, but I find that they hold up well. They're inexpensive. 
and they're very practical. Um, I tend to be very practical in my gear, and I've had really good luck with those socks. And, and that's the thing is, like, when I say I try something every other hunter does, but I try outside the box well. And those socks breathe. They wick moisture. They dry quickly. There's a combination of several materials that works really well. Interesting. I'll have to try that. Uh, thank you for that. Um, I wanted to ask you if you knew about uh, what's going on in the 15s units uh, with the sheep and the pneumonia and the coughing that they found. Um, it's really hopefully uh, not going to play out as a huge tragedy. I'm hoping that somehow that they can get a handle on it. But um, you are aware of what's going on up there with the sheep, right? Yeah, I'm aware of it. And it's definitely, I would use the word tragic. Um, sheep populations and modern man have struggled to coexist. You know, if you look back at history, we see these sheep populations that will do really well. And then uh, disease or other uh, man influence comes in and it's the, the population just crash. And for people that spend so much time there and, and love the sheep herd and the mountains and the other animals that are there, it's really tragic. Um, we'll have to kind of see how it plays out, um, but it's, it's certainly tragic. It also points towards some of the geopolitical stuff that's happening in our modern world. You know, there's some non-native animals that are probably to blame for some of the invasive diseases that have caused these problems. And unfortunately, uh, so many different factions in our society of people that, that love a certain critter that's non-native and support it, even though it shouldn't be there in a vacuum and don't understand the, the large consequences it has to other critters. Um, and then the domestic critters. Now, I, I'm not anti-ranching by any stretch of the imagination, but there are some landscapes that I have a difficult time supporting um, those types of public land uses and when you have a non-native animal come in and bring a disease that wipes out a, a, a nice resource like a, a sheep horde in those mountains, both for photographers, for hunters, and just for the future generations in Arizona, it, it's difficult to, to accept that. Yeah, apparently they're thinking that there was some illegal, I think they were goats, um, grazing there, I think in 15C north and south, um, just a total maverick deal. I think that's what they're thinking this came from. And, uh, you know, I've heard that they're thinking that it, it, it could very possibly uh, wipe out, you know, 70, 80, 90 percent of those sheep, which is really unfortunate because you you obviously shot your personal sheep in 15D North. And, um, you know, you've helped us up there on those raffle hunts. And, you know, the last handful of years, you know, they've surveyed 500 plus sheep and in those mountains and to know that, you know, 400 or so of those animals could die is, is, is a real tragedy. It is a big tragedy. And, you know, the successes of things like sheep crossings across the, the highways and things are celebrated and they should be. Um, but the interactions of those sheep from other areas into that mountain range, um, it's ironic that those conservation efforts that are meant to help diversity and sheep populations can also have these double-edged sword effects of, of the disease transmission across those man-made barriers. Um, and the, the impact is likely to be felt beyond the 15s. I know that there was a sheep, sheep transfer 
um, up to Canab Creek this year. And the agencies and others involved work diligently to ensure the sheep that they translocate um, aren't disease carriers. It's a little early to say, but it seems like there may have been affected sheep that they didn't know had this and they were translocated to maybe perhaps another unit. And it's, so the, re- the impact could be far reaching. Yeah, which is, it's really hard um, because, you know, the sheep and the 12s, you know, they've, they've really started coming on and it would be a, just a complete tragedy if we lost those sheep as well. So hopefully the authorities can get it figured out and maybe get it isolated. Um, hopefully something will happen that it won't be uh, as widespread as what, what we're thinking it's going to be. But uh, yeah, just a tough deal. Um, how was your... Um, well, looking. Well, how was your fault? Go ahead. I want to say one thing there, Jay. Uh, I would encourage uh, sportsmen, sportswomen, and conservationists to get involved and, and to be cautious about judging. You know, I fully support the activities that have taken place, and it's the right thing to do. Those sheep crossings across the freeways, the translocation, they're all critical to the success of the sheep in Arizona, not just in these mountain ranges, but in all mountain ranges. And it's not without a set of challenges. And it's easy to sit back and go, well, we should have done this and we shouldn't have done that. And, and I caution strongly against that. It's not, it's not helping. Um, people that feel passionate for this should get involved and do what they can to make the situation better and not second guess um, what has happened. Yeah, absolutely. And to further that, I think anybody out there, whether they're a sheep hunter or not, if they're a hunter in the state of Arizona, a sportsman, they need to be, uh, in my opinion, a member of the Arizona Desert Bighorn Sheep Society. Uh, that group has done amazing things for the sheep here in Arizona, and um, it's a very nominal fee to be a member, and um, they do amazing things, And as well as we should support all the conservation groups. Um, and uh, it's just an important thing, and I think it's a duty that we have to uh do as, as hunters um it's 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 mandatory and um i wish more people would do it and support those groups um how was your 2015 season other than buffalo um and do you have a bunch of points or any tags that you're looking forward to personally uh in 2016 uh and or what what do you foresee going on in 2016 okay well, um, I have a bunch of points for lots of critters, so I um, about do several um, tags. So um, any one of those could fall, but as difficult as the tags I choose to apply for are to get, I, I won't be surprised if I don't pull one. Um, as far as is 2016, I, I'm just excited and looking forward to it. You know, you asked there a little bit about last year and, and other species that we got to pursue. Um We did an archery antelope hunt that was a very, very special hunt. Um, the, the sportsman that had the tag um, had had a tumor in his lung um, when he was in his teenage years, and he'd actually had a lung removed. I've hunted with lots of different hunters with lots of different ailments, but I'd never hunted with a hunter that only had one lung. And um, I, very, I have a lot of respect for that hunter getting out there and pursuing uh, an animal and hiking in the mountains with, you know, half the lung capacity that the average person has. And just phenomenal attitude, kept at it, 
and we were able to harvest a, a very nice antelope um, in Unit 7 here, right where I live. And it was a lot of fun. So I like opportunities like that. I've always enjoyed hunting all the animals in Arizona. So when I get an opportunity to do a hunt like that, I really look forward to it. Um, to be honest with you, the buffalo has gotten to be so busy that I don't get to do as many of the other hunts that I, that I really enjoy doing. Um, I do a few of the other hunts each year, but I feel guilty if, uh, if there's buffalo tags and I'm not there contributing to the effort of, of people trying to harvest their buffalo tags. So this last year, I've actually brought on additional help so that it can relieve some of the, the workload off of me and free me up to do a few of those other things. As intense as we pursue the animals, what I find is I can't bring the level of intensity that I want to to every hunt back to back for the full duration of every hunt. And I won't shortchange the hunters that that trust us. So by bringing in some additional resources, it lets me work really hard for three, four, five days, then I'll back off and hand it off to one of my helpers. Um, and then I'll rest up for a few days and then I'll cycle back in. And, and that's worked really, really well for us. Wilderness Athlete is committed to improving the health and quality of life for the outdoor athlete by providing field-tested, scientifically validated nutrition and sports performance products. Check them out at wildernessathlete.com and use the J. Scott promo code to receive 10% off any order in February 2016. Have you guys heard about PhoneScope? PhoneScope is a privately held company that makes custom-molded, precisely engineered smartphone digiscoping adapters. Photographing wildlife has never been easier. Take digiscoping photos and videos from your smartphone and share them with your friends. PhoneScope stands behind their product with a 100% money-back guarantee. PhoneScope is the future of digiscoping. Get yours now. Use the JSCOT16 promo code and receive 10% discount on all purchases. Check them out at Phonescope, that's P-H-O-N-E-S-K-O-P-E dot com, or on Instagram, at Phonescope. That's awesome. Russ, it's been great having you on the show today. Um, do you have any uh, questions of me or any parting thoughts here before we... Uh, uh, go along with our day. Well, Jay, um, I kind of want to make a few comments. Um, you know, in our modern world with uh, social media and the other things, um, hunting gets a lot of um, positive media, but it also gets some negative media. You know, when you look at some of the reactions that we get to um, predator hunts in in other continents and things like that. And we all know which incident we're talking about there. Um, there's an opportunity for all sportsmen to step up and do what they can to put a positive influence for hunting for the future. Uh, with our current political environment and the talk of, you know, the second amendment and additional controls and all these other things, um, it's kind of a crazy world that we live in. So I'd like to commend you on the positive, um, impact that you have in our industry, um, the podcasts and the education and the other things that you're doing are to be applauded. And I encourage other sportsmen to get involved and do those same things. You know, look at the good that you've done just as one person um, in all the interviews and the positive things you've done to try to help people. 
and I applaud that. And I, I encourage other sportsmen to get involved. I'm not going to toot my own horn here, but I'm going to share a couple of examples, which I, I think other sportsmen can follow, which will help all of us. Um, in the environment where I work for my day job as an engineer, I encounter a lot of non-hunters and even some anti-hunters. And they look to me as a leader. They'll come to me and go, what do you think about this or what do you think about that? You need to be very careful not to judge people or, or treat them poorly because they have different perspectives than we do. What I've found is if you reach out to people and you educate them and you share your information, you can have a big positive impact. Um, I've had uh, coworkers that are anti-hunting, and several of them now are actually applying for and harvesting animals in Arizona. And people that, that watch that pattern happen, they'll joke to other people, like, don't talk to Russ, he'll turn you into a hunter. Um, but I just would encourage people to be careful what they type on social media. Let's be professional and let's do the right thing. And if we do that, my children, your children, and other people's children and grandchildren will have, hopefully have the same opportunities that we've been blessed with. That's uh, great stuff, Russ. Um, absolutely couldn't agree with you more. Thanks for bringing that up for sure. Um, how do people that are listening uh, contact you if they have a buffalo tag, um, if they want to talk hunting or have any questions? How do they get a hold of you, Russ? So I'll give you my phone number and my email. Um, we don't actually run a website, and a lot of people are shocked to find that. Um, literally, Jay, I'm amazed at how you're able to accomplish all the electronic media stuff that you do. I literally... <laughs> Do not time in my week to, to get that done. Um, you know, between my, my engineering job and the buffalo hunting and the other hunting we do, being a dad, I just don't have time to do anything online. Um, I do provide the pictures to my hunters and, you know, a lot of consulting to other people like yourself on equipment and gear and things like that. But I don't formally post reviews and things. I'm hoping that as I get more help, I might be able to find time to do that because I do think I can provide a lot of information. And uh, some thanks back to the gear makers that I use. But the best way to get a hold of me is to call my cell phone number. That number is 928-814-9622. And that cell phone is on me 24-7. And I tell people, don't worry about calling me anytime you want. If I'm available, I'll take the call. If I can't, I will call you back. And, of course, email is always good. My email is coyote, C-O-Y-O-T-E, rustler, R-U-S-T-L-E-R, at gmail.com. If you can't get through to me either one of those ways, if you contact Game and Fish in the units where I hunt, um, they'll be aware of me and they'll know how to get you in touch with me. So you can always reach out to me that way as well. There was changes in the laws in Arizona recently when I say recently, in the last few years, that allow you to use um, air rifles for big game. Really? Yeah. Most people are unfamiliar with big bore air rifles, okay? All of us had a Daisy Red Rider when we were a kid. And yeah. many of us wore out pump-up air guns when we were a kid. But, Jay, there are air rifles that you can kill a deer or an elk with in Arizona, legally. No way. Yeah. And... um a podcast about big bore air rifles would blow people away. Most people are don't even know they exist. 
And this actually has some history that ties into our country. Um, Lewis and Clark crossed the continent in the early 1800s. Now let's think about what that meant, okay? Jay, we're going to take you and Dar, we're going to put you in Missouri, and you're going to walk to Washington State and back, okay? Mm -hmm. No roads and no white settlers anywhere, okay? Uh, There's a few crazy mountain men running around in the woods, but other than that, the only people around are hostile Indians, okay? Mm -hmm. You guys are going to walk all the way across the country and back with a team of, you know, a dozen people, and you're going to be outnumbered, you know, 100 to 1. How are you going to pull that off? Uh, I wouldn't. (laughs) It's lost in our nation's history, but they pulled it off with an air rifle. Now, how would you use an air rifle to cross the continent? Well, the Indians at the time fought the white man because we had muskets, okay? They had tomahawks. So when they'd encounter an army, they would just hide in the bushes and, you know, European fighting men at the time would line up in a straight line and point their gun at the bad guys and they'd fire a volley. While they're reloading, the Indians would jump out of their hiding spot and run up and hack them to death with a tomahawk. So a tomahawk and a musket are on equal ground if you have similar, if you have the right tactics, okay? So if you look at movies like The Patriot, Mel Gibson's character carries multiple um, muskets. He'll fire one and then fire another and fire another, and he has someone else reloading them so they can, can have a basically a repeating arm. The air rifle that Lewis and Clark had was a repeater. More importantly than being a repeater, it didn't use powder, and it didn't have any smoke. So the Indians didn't understand it. They could march into a village and do their trading and all that stuff. And when they would commonly be attacked, would be at night. Well, they were smart. They'd whip out their air rifle and do a demonstration before they went to camp. And the Indians were afraid of their air rifle. Whether you are interested in elk, deer, antelope, bighorn sheep, or moose, Western Hunter and Elk Hunter magazines will bring the adventure to your mailbox. These publications feature articles on the finest hunting gear, tips and tactics from experienced hunters, field judging trophies, glassing techniques, calling strategies, and much more. To become a more knowledgeable and skilled hunter, subscribe today. Go to westernhunter.net forward slash jscott and enter your email address for a chance to win a $1,500 credit towards any Swarovski product. Utah Hydrographics is in the water transfer printing service and they are open to whatever you can dream up. Choose from a wide range of camel patterns, designs, and colors. Whether it's guns, bows, tools, rifle stocks, vehicles, steering wheels, fenders, dashboards, paint guns, fishing rods, cups, tripods, watches, knife grips, helmets for a local sports team or for your motorcycle, picture frames, mailbox, animal skulls, you name it, they can probably do it. Utah Hydrographics loves taking things that are general looking and turns them into something that looks fantastic and eye-popping. Give them a call and see what they can do for you and receive up to a 10% discount by using the J. Scott 16 promo code. Visit them at utahhydrographics.com or on Instagram at Utah Hydrographics. They would fire a 22-shot volley and then stop. And they would tell the Indians that it doesn't use powder, 
it doesn't ever run empty, and that every white man has one. So the Indians were afraid of them because they didn't understand it. To them, it looked like magic. It shot a projectile, but there was no smoke, no powder, and it never stopped firing. And they didn't understand it. They were afraid of it. So they were afraid to attack them. And that's how they were able to cross the continent and settle the West as quickly as they did was because of an air rifle. I never knew that. Why do we never hear about that? Well, um, there's a Cinderella story that goes along with the Lewis and Clark air rifle. Um, when I was in high school, I actually did a project on Lewis and Clark. And, of course, it was about their air rifle. And history had lost the Lewis and Clark air rifle. You couldn't go to the Smithsonian and see their air rifle or anything like that. The holy grail of firearms collecting in North America is probably the Lewis and Clark air rifle. There's other famous things like White Earth Six Shooter and General Custard's uh, Cavalry Rifle and things like that. But the very first famous rifle in Arizona had to be the Lewis and Clark Air Rifle. And if you look at the history and the lore of it, it was actually a national secret at the time. The president snuck or smuggled an air rifle into the U.S. from Austria. Okay? And Girondoni was the man that made the rifle in, in Austria. Had he, uh, had it got out that he had smuggled that rifle to the U.S., he could have been tried and prosecuted for treason, okay? Air rifles at Napoleon times were much more useful than muskets. Ben Franklin tried to get him to use air rifles in the Revolutionary War, but at the time, people just weren't smart enough to figure out how to make all that work. But an air rifle, a repeater, and no powder I mean, come on. This was like today's modern, uh, the modern equivalent would be a semi-automatic or fully automatic firearm. It was such an advantage over a single shot that it's just unfathomable. So Lewis and Clark cross the country and come back. When they come back, they have to turn the air rifle back in to the president. Okay. And in their journals, they talk about the rifle, but they don't go into great detail because they're hiding it. Okay. Well, when they came back and it got lost to history, it's just disappeared. And collectors all around the country have been looking for that air rifle ever since the 1800s. And it was actually found in the last decade or so. And when it was found, no it caused a resurgence in popularity of the air rifle. And how it was found is even a story that would be interesting in your podcast. There's two guys that hand make um, turn to the previous century firearms. And if you're the Louvre in Paris and you want a replica of the musket that Napoleon had at Waterloo, these are the guys you call. And a lot of their projects are hundreds of thousands of dollars for handmade, hand cast, period correct firearms. Um, you're basically going to an 18th century firearm maker in the modern world and having to make you another one with hand tools. And it's pretty cool. You know, it's a little weird, but pretty cool. These guys got bored building muskets and Napoleon replicas and things. And they're Americans, so, they're, you know, they're brash people. They decide they're going to find the Lewis and Clark air rifle. Just one day, we're going to find the Lewis and Clark air rifle. Well, Americans are the only people that do this kind of stuff, right? Other people, <laughs> it's not that uh, cocky. So they start looking into it, they read all the Lewis and Clark journals, they write down all the descriptions of the air rifles, but they weren't predisposed on the type of firearm that it was. 
And recently, there was a new journal published, and it wasn't from Lewis and Clark. It was from a gentleman named Rodney. <clears throat> Rodney was in the military, and he bumped into Lewis and Clark when they were on their journey. And he wrote about their air rifle in his journals, but he wasn't under the same gag order they were. So he produced additional information that most of the scholars just ignore. So by reading Rodney's journals, they were convinced that the Lewis and Clark air rifle was a Girondoni. All the experts knew it couldn't be a Girondoni. So they started looking at Girondonis and making a replica to prove that the Lewis and Clark air rifle was a Girondoni. So to do that, they call up one of their buddies at the Louvre over in Paris and like, hey, who's the world's expert on Girondoni air rifles? And it turns out it's Dr. Beeman here in the U.S. And they go, why do you why do you want to know? They go, well, we know the Lewis and Clark air rifle was a Girondoni, so we want to call him up. They're like, you can't call him up and tell him that. He'll not talk to you if you tell him that. So they're friends, and he reluctantly agrees to give them his cell phone number if they don't mention that the Lewis and Clark air rifle is a Girondoni. So they call up Dr. Beeman, and the first words out of their mouth are, we're convinced the Lewis and Clark air rifle is a Girondoni. <laughs> <laughs> so he digs through his collection, and the way this usually works is a collector will give you one of their priceless million-dollar firearms, and in exchange for you taking it apart and replicating it, they get a free one. And then you make a replica for yourself and for your other customers. And like I said, these are quarter million dollar replicas. So, you know, it's it's mutually beneficial for everyone involved. So Dr. Beeman digs through his collection. And, of course, he picks up his most beat up gun to send to these guys. He's not going to send him one of his good ones, right? Mm -hmm. So they get this gun and they take it apart. And the more they get into it, the more they're convinced that the Lewis and Clark air rifle was a Girondoni. But Cinderella stories being what they are, not only was the Lewis and Clark air rifle a Girondoni, they're holding the Lewis and Clark air rifle. No way. Yes. The way they found out this is in the journals, there's a point where one of the canoes capsizes and the air rifle goes overboard and it's floating down river. And he gets smashed against a tree and the canoe crashes into it. Well, these kinds of things happens on adventure. You break guns. But this was not a gun that the expedition could afford to break. If they broke this gun, they were dead men. So they lovingly get it out of the clink and clean it up. And around the campfire at night, they had cracked the forestock and broke some stuff in it. They do all these field repairs to this. They literally took pine pitch and made glue and glued it back together on the side of a bank of a river over a campfire, okay? Um, but there's a point in their journey where they break the main spring that causes the firearm to function. It's part of the lock mechanism, the hammering, firing mechanism. And being Americans and being, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, ingenuity. Resourceful yeah. and having some ingenuity they have a farrier along to shoe the horses. And so he's basically a blacksmith, a metallurgist, right? He takes a farrier's rasp and he heat treats it and tempers it and does all the stuff he needs to do to convert it into a mainspring. And he hand makes a mainspring and hardens it and tempers it to be a good working spring and he puts it in the gun. And so when they take this gun apart, 
they find that the mainspring in the firearm was made from a farrier's rasp. Because you can see the marks of the file that were still in the metal. So they got pretty excited. Now, those are all circumstantial evidence. But they take and they do forensic analysis of the lead in the bore of the firearm. And it turns out lead, you can get a DNA fingerprint, if you will, for the lead uh, from the radioisotope analysis. This particular lead in the bore came from a mine in Missouri, which is the last place that Lewis and Clark resupplied before they left civilization and headed on their journey. Once again, somewhat circumstantial, but it's getting more firm. But they make a bullet mold, and they hand push a projectile through the bore, which gives them the lands and grooves pattern of the bore, which is a, a DNA fingerprint for a firearm. They then go to the Lewis and Clark, where Lewis and Clark overwintered in Washington, there's a fort. And of course, while they're there and they were bored in the wintertime, they were shooting projectiles into the tree. And the museum there has projectiles that they shot into the tree with their air rifle. And they definitively match the gun that they're holding to the Lewis and Clark projectiles that are in the museum in Washington State. <laughs> so imagine the phone call when they call up Dr. Beeman and they go, you were wrong all these years. The Lewis and Clark air rifle was a Girondoni, and we've got some good news for you. The firearm you've been looking for for your whole life has been in your possession the whole time. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> and there's companies making replicas of the original Lewis and Clark air rifle, and I'm going to buy one. That is awesome. That's one of the coolest stories I've ever heard. <laughs> So the firearm now has been, I think, donated to the NRA Museum, and the NRA actually has some videos where they tell this whole story, and um, they actually show these guys shooting the replica of a Lewis and Clark air rifle. So, I mean, I'm pretty savvy on firearm stuff, and I had all kinds of air rifles as a kid and, and very familiar with them. And I knew Lewis and Clark had this big bore air rifle, but I didn't know there was any modern big bore air rifles. Since then, over the last several years, I've acquired several big bore air rifles. So I have a 22, a 25, a 30, and a 45 caliber air rifle. So I have an air rifle that you can legally use to shoot javelina, deer, and elk, bear, and mountain lions in Arizona. How do they shoot, Russ? So they shoot amazing. Um, the way they work is there's an air chamber. So they're called pre-charged pneumatic air rifles. So think of a tank, if you will, full of air, and it's part of the firearm. On the Lewis and Clark air rifle, it was the buttstock. It unscrewed, okay? Um, think of like a those one-pound propane cylinders. Think of one of those yeah. compressed air, and you screw it onto the gun, and that's your buttstock, okay? So this chamber holds air, and the rifle is not unlike a musket. You've got a board that's rifled. You've got a lock mechanism, a hammer that falls, but you have a poppet valve. So the poppet valve is, is real similar to the tire valve on your car. You know how you push down and air comes out and you let go and it seals? Mm -hmm. It works exactly the same way. There's a little poppet valve um, in the firearm. So when you screw on that tank, just like a propane tank, it pushes down a valve and it lets airflow come to this poppet valve. When the hammer falls, it taps the poppet valve. And it lets air escape, and it's channeled behind the projectile. And it works like a spit gun. 
just like when you were a kid and you put a spit wad in a straw and you blew on it, it just pushes the projectile out of the bore. How accurate is it? So I have some air rifles that will shoot a dime-sized group at 50 yards. Wow. Um, my, what what kind of bullet do they shoot? What size? So they're lead bullets. They're lead bullets, and it depends on the diameter. Okay. So um, if you want to think of it this way, my 45 caliber um, will. It's like shooting a 45 ACP, like a 45 handgun. So you have several hundred grain lead ball. It's going around a thousand feet per second, but it will go through a one inch pine board at a hundred yards. Wow. So at 50 yards, I can shoot a four by four post. It'll go through it. Wow. My 30 caliber air rifle, you can hit a steel gong at 300 yards with an air rifle. Wow. <laughs> and it's a fun thing. You know, um, and it makes literally no noise. So it, yes and no. Okay. In the U S air rifles are not firearms. They're not regulated by the ATF. You can buy one on the internet, ship it to your house, no license, no, none of that required. Now certain states have draconian laws that require additional things, but in Arizona, it's not considered a firearm. Um, you could buy one on the internet, ship it to your house and all you need is lead projectiles and you're ready to go. And a lot of the big bore air rifles, you just get um, a bullet mold for lead bullets. You can cast your lead bullet over a campfire, and you're off to the races. <laughs> so what I like about it is in our modern world where they're talking about outlawing firearms and where it's hard to get ammunition and so forth, there's no primer, there's no powder, there's no brass case. All you need is a lead bullet. Jay Scott, I can take lead and a campfire and a bullet mold. And I don't need Big Brother to provide me any of my shooting ammunition. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> so sometime when we get together, bring the Big Four Air Rifle and some bullets, and we'll let you um, shoot it, and um, you'll be hooked. <laughs> if the mainstream shooting community was exposed to Big Four Air Rifles, the manufacturers would be unable to keep up with demand. Because every red-blooded American redneck hunter in the world wants one. He just doesn't know uh-huh. Just doesn't know it yet. Yep. That, that's awesome, Russ. That is great. That's a it great story. A cool podcast. It's a little technical, kind of, but it has some history to it. And it would educate people in a way that they would never understand. And um, you can link it to a video you could post of us shooting it and uh, showing people the performance. That would be cool. That would be cool, man. Well, thanks a lot for uh, spending time with me here this morning, and uh, I'll catch you later. That was awesome. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jay. Um, we'll be in touch. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity. I really do. And I appreciate you thinking for me and the friendship. Um, I wish the best for your family this year. Say hi to Dar for me, and uh, we'll be in touch. All right, buddy. You too. Take care. Bye.